My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 6, Comrade Minister. I started at Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty, RFERL, a couple of weeks before the radio's newly appointed CEO slash president, Kevin Close, started his tenure, the same Kevin Close who would go on to lead National Public Radio. His position at RFERL was a presidential appointment from the newly elected Democratic president, Bill Clinton. Oddly, I was expecting a progressive liberal, not a homicidal homophobe. I guess I was wrong. Working with Comrade Kevin Close, or KKK as we would come to refer to him, was not what I expected at all. Everything that came out of his mouth sounded so, well, Republican. I just didn't get it. How had President Clinton appointed this neocon to be my new boss? Immediately upon his arrival, I was asked to accompany him, Barry Zorthian, this really cool Armenian-American guy, and a representative from Voice of America on a trip to scout out and negotiate a new location in Central Asia to rebroadcast our radio signals. I was the translator. We went to three Central Asian countries under consideration, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Then we were to attend a symposium in Amaata sponsored by President Jimmy Carter and President Nursultan Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan. The symposium was about how to utilize a free press in building new democracies. Our last stop before the symposium was with Kazakhstan's Minister of Communications. I spent one of the longest nights of my life translating these negotiations with the comrade minister. Now, as a linguist, it's my duty to explain what the word negotiate means to a Soviet apparatchik. And if you don't know what an apparatchik is, well, the direct translation would be bureaucrat. Basically, they were the nasty Communist Party hacks who ran the Soviet Union. Seen through the eyes of a recovering Mormon such as myself, these communist bureaucrats are remarkably similar to the general authorities who ran the Mormon church. Self-important, plump, shiny white bumpkins in cheap, shiny suits. I will forever marvel at the long list of similarities between the men who ran the Mormon church and the men who ran the Soviet Union, but that's for a different podcast. So, this is how the evening unfolded. Tavarish Minister would tell us how it was going to be, and we would tell him what parts of his proposal we could agree to, and what parts we had to rethink. Then, Tavarish Minister would repeat himself almost word for word and tell us how it was going to be, and we would try to explain why American taxpayers would not pay for a central news office that practiced censorship. Then, Tavarish Minister would tell us how it was going to be and scoff at the mere notion that his quality control was censorship. Now, as I'm translating my boss's objections, this old fart starts hitting me on the shin with his cane and telling us how it was going to be. At this point, I assume he, A, like most communist apparatchiks of his day, was too ill-educated to get the concept of the Greek messenger. I'm just the translator here, buddy, and B, had probably never been contradicted in his life, so hitting me with his cane seemed to him to be the appropriate response. I'm sure he would have rather sent me to the gulags, but that option was, thank God, not available to him. This all took place at his personal dacha in the gorgeous foothills of the Himalayan mountains. Mind you, this dacha was more like Camp David, at least in size, if not amenities. 
This circus went on for hours. It was like a Russian Orthodox Easter Mass. It had no end. It started around 6 p.m. in his main conference room, and then we went to what we thought was our dinner, about 10 p.m. Then, his sauna and ice plunge, 2 a.m. Then, dinner. Apparently, what we had thought was dinner was just zukusniki, snacks. Okay, by this time, my shins are severely bruised and it hurts to walk. For the first time in my life, I turned to my boss, Kevin, and told him, that's it, I'm finished. I'm not translating another word for this moron. Kevin begged me to keep translating. Then, at that very moment, like an angel of salvation, this obligatorily rotund babushka comes walking out of the kitchen with a boiled lamb's head on a silver tray. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Tavarish Minister then proudly declared, As our guest of honor, we would like to open the dinner by inviting Comrade Kevin Close to have the first bite of the boiled lamb's head. Ha! You bet your sweet ass I translated that, and with a huge grin on my face. Be careful what you wish for, Kevy. For future note, if you ever find yourself served boiled lamb's head in Central Asia, go for the small piece of meat just under the cheekbone. The scalp, so Kevin told me later, is a bit rubbery. At any rate, we stuffed ourselves to the point of total nauseam, the rest of the food was really incredible, and finally Kevin said he had had enough and we were going to bed. Naturally, I translated that, too. It was 4 a.m., and Tavarish Minister followed us all the way down the long hill to the house where we were staying, telling us how it was going to be, while hitting the back of my calves with his cane. Kevin told me to ignore him, and he literally slammed the door in his face. Thank God. We had to be up two hours later to drive to Amaata and meet President Carter in Nazarbayev. And wouldn't you know it, the representative from Voice of America snored like a lumberjack. Now, under normal circumstances, I'm not a pleasant person in the morning. But after literally breaking through the ice on a bucket of cold water so that I and three other men could shave, and getting ready to meet my political hero, Jimmy Carter, on zero hours sleep, I was about ready to have a full-on nervous breakdown. Then, as if that wasn't enough, there was no breakfast for us. Our hosts were still sleeping. I need to take a momentary break here for a wee bit of political pontification. I know how the conservatives love to make fun of Carter, so let's break it down. There are two or three things they really hated about President Carter. Number one, his crazy energy policy. I mean, why should we research and develop alternative energy sources when we had all the oil we needed in the Middle East. Everyone laughed when in 1973, one of the first things President Carter did was install solar panels on the White House. Of course, had we implemented Carter's crazy ideas of researching alternative energy sources instead of laughing at them, the subsequent 50 years would have been drastically different. For example, there were those two pesky Gulf oil wars that we would have likely avoided entirely. Seriously, think about it. 2. The Panama Canal Treaty Carter gave Panama control of the canal a few years early, but as a concession, we got go-to-the-front-of-the-line priority during any military conflict for perpetuity, as in forever. 
something we put to very good use during those two pesky oil wars. You know, the same wars that we would have avoided had we listened to Carter's alternative energy proposals in the first place. And lastly, for the first time in American history, Carter made human rights the guiding force for U.S. foreign policy. Before that time, America's policy was basically to support absolutely anyone who opposed the communists, no matter how tyrannical or even murderous that regime was. Remember Augusto Pinochet? We gave him the military equipment he needed to violently overthrow the democratically elected liberal government of Chile. Once in power, he put the military equipment we gave him to very good use by murdering some 30,000 of his opponents. His favorite method of torture-slash-murder was using American planes to fly people over the middle of the Atlantic and throw them off. Carter proposed we no longer support governments guilty of such grotesque human rights violations. The conservatives and the press savaged him for this. Yet a couple of years into Ronald Reagan's presidency, he called Carter's wacky idea of using human rights as a major driver of U.S. foreign policy a proud American tradition. Reagan conveniently neglected to mention the recent origins of this quintessentially American tradition. Today, this principle is indeed one of our proudest traditions, but we always seem to forget that it began with President Jimmy Carter. So, after a three-hour drive, we arrived at the symposium, hungry, exhausted, grumpy, and having not consumed a single drop of coffee. I do not function well without coffee. We all looked like we had woken up in a yurt. I had cut myself so many times while shaving in a bucket of ice-cold water that it looked like I had been hit by buckshot. I was hoping against hope I wouldn't have to meet President Carter till the second day of the symposium. Once we arrived at the symposium, Kevin sent me off to flirt with the women in the kitchen and try to drum up something to eat. I regaled them with the tale of Tavarish Minister, telling us how it was going to be, and it worked. Crying with laughter, they loaded me up with the only thing they had, a huge stack of hors d'oeuvres on a silver tray, and four bottles of warm Pepsi. With the Pepsi laced between the fingers of one hand, and the tray precariously balanced on the other, and looking like a clumsy contortionist from Cirque du Soleil, I whisked open the curtain with my semi-free elbow, and, oh lord, please tell me I didn't just hit someone. I hear this loud grunt from the other side of the curtain. The tray goes flying. Kevin barely catches it. I have warm fizzy Pepsi dripping down my arms. And there he is. My hero, President Carter. Prostrate, trying to catch his breath. Oh God, please just take me now. Considering I had just kidney punched him, Carter was unbelievably gracious. And once he was able to speak again, said, um... You must be Stuart. Then he made some kind joke and everyone laughed and I just wanted to die. Actually, he made a point of joking with me and generally making me feel quite at ease for the rest of the week. He greeted each and every delegate, their assistants, and even the wait staff by name at least once daily. He was remarkable. He also made a point of treating everyone from the president of our host nation to the waiters with the same cordial respect. He would quote books word-perfect and then tell us what page he was speaking from. But my favorite thing about Carter was the loving way he looked at his wife, Rosalind. It was the same way my grandpa looked at Grandma, his sweetheart. Working with Carter was an experience I will not soon forget, nor, I fear, 
will he? Not long after our return from Central Asia, the rumors started circulating that Kevin was often heard saying at high-level staff meetings that he wanted to thin the radio out of all these fags. At that time, I think there were about 15 out gay men at the radios. Shortly after our return, I was promoted to the deputy director of the Russian Broadcasting Department, in charge of administration. Yeah, this may sound impressive, but it isn't really. It was widely seen as the most difficult job in the radio and was considered a sure-fire dead-end job. Anyone who has ever worked with a bunch of old Russian journalists can easily understand why. Russian intellectuals are the only people I know that are bigger divas than drag queens. The whole place was a snake pit. The first day in my new position, I was asked to report to the security office for a briefing. When I walked in the room, I was met by the radio security officer and a uniformed German intelligence officer. I was informed that my top-secret security clearance, from my undercover days working for the U.S. government when the KGB was trying to recruit me, had been officially extended to include my time at Radio Free Europe. I was then informed that part of my responsibility would be to keep an eye on a couple of employees who were under investigation by the German and U.S. governments. It appeared one of the other deputy directors, a former KGB colonel, was under suspicion for selling old Soviet military equipment on the black market. That wasn't even the most shocking thing. One of our most famous and most beloved journalists was under investigation for smuggling antique jewelry and various treasures like Fabergé eggs out of Russia and into Germany by hiding them in her person. Yes, I said in. And it sounds only slightly more delicate in German than in English, but either way, I was shocked. Everyone saw her as this sweet old upper-class babushka, the Russian version of a cross between the Golden Girls and Martha Stewart. The thought of this sweet but inexplicably wealthy babushka stuffing a Fabergé egg in her... Well, yeah, I'm sure you get the picture. A couple of years later, she was murdered in Prague, presumably by the Russian Mafia. The Soviets had stopped jamming our broadcasts, which meant we had upwards of 20 million listeners a week. It also meant we could no longer just keep repeating the same old stuff over and over again like we had done for years. The problem was that after 12 years of Reagan and Bush Sr., the Republicans had left Clinton with a disastrous financial reality, and there was no budget for us to do this. I was tasked with doubling the hours of programming on a reduced budget. So I hired a programmer to design and implement a multilingual data management system that generated program outlines, 24-hour broadcast schedules, script archives, and freelance payment statistics, resulting in a 75% reduction of clerical hours. But some of the journalists refused to even use an electric typewriter. Forget a computer. This made me not the darling of the department as I had imagined, but the devil himself for forcing them onto computers and eliminating most of the clerical work. The ironic thing was that RFERL was a microcosm of the Soviet Union itself, complete with the purges. Here we were using U.S. taxpayer money to bring down communism, but the organization we were using to do it was just like the Soviet Union, only smaller. This place was Machiavellian to the extreme, Everything was cloak and dagger and decided through dirty backroom politicking. One usually heard of new directives to the overactive rumor mill long before they were ever transposed into the form of an actual memo or directive. 
there was constant whispering that people were about to be fired. Our official policy was to get rid of our overpopulation of clerks through the only legal means available to us under German labor law, retirement, reassignment, or attrition. However, the rumors were that I was the Ivan the Terrible of the Information Age and wanted everyone fired. I would regularly have sobbing Russian secretaries accusing me of stealing food from the mouths of their babes, never mind the fact that most of their babes were juniors at Harvard or Princeton. I tried to explain the concept of attrition. I tried to explain I was a really nice guy and nobody was getting fired. They inevitably left my office sobbing, saying I was just a naive, stupid American boy who clearly only believed what they, the higher-ups, wanted me to believe. Turns out they were right, and in all fairness, there was a lot to be worried about. Many of them did lose their jobs. I have never witnessed so much bloodletting in my life. At times I felt like I was working for Dzerzhinsky, not a Clinton appointee. As an administrator and taxpayer, I found the whole thing outrageous. It wasn't the sheer volume of people losing their jobs, but the clumsy and, in Germany, very illegal and costly means by which Comrade Kevin Close chose to get rid of everyone. We were not in the United States. You can't just fire people willy-nilly in Europe. You see, in Europe, employees have this inexplicable thing called rights. I tried on several occasions to explain this to Kevin, but by that time he had clearly written me off as a pinko in both senses of the word. Under German labor law, the burden of proof is on the employer, not the employee. It is the employer's legal responsibility to prove every person who lost their job did so for a legal reason. This is vastly more difficult than the way we do it in America, where the employee must prove he was fired for an illegal reason. To reduce your budget, not to mention Kevin's cronyism and homophobia, were not legally acceptable reasons in German labor courts. Everyone who lost their job took us to court, and we proceeded to lose over 90% of these labor disputes. Whenever we lost a case, we had to give the former employee a severance package equaling a salary that covered the rest of their natural lives. This is neither hyperbole nor exaggeration. We literally spent millions upon millions of dollars at the U.S. taxpayer's expense. All this because some stupid neocon refused to accept the world as it was and insisted on doing things as if he were John fucking Wayne in a right-to-work state. Regarding my job security, I had told Kevin very early on, the only way I was going to survive the wrath of the Russian department was if I had his unequivocal support. He promised me that he had my back. Well, maybe he had his fingers crossed, or maybe he was thinking knife in the back. But all I saw was a homophobe successfully conducting his witch hunt on America's dime. He saw to it that this fag didn't get my contract renewed. By the time Kevin Close was finished with his purges, half the staff was gone including all but two or three of the out gay men. Even though I had done a great job, this was one of the many times in my life that it just didn't matter. I was gay, and therefore I deserved to lose my job. And because I was a contract employee, not a permanent employee, I was not protected by German labor law. My generation of gay men took situations like this for granted. It was the norm. I can't even count the number of jobs I lost because I was openly gay. This is just the way it was, and getting upset about it would do nothing but give you ulcers. 
Well, goodbye and good riddance. Radio Free Europe was an exasperating experience, and I was not sorry to leave after my 18-month contract was over. Besides, I had sent out some 40 resumes, and I already had lined up four solid interviews. I wasn't worried at all. Though I probably should have been. My name is Stuart Merrill. And I woke up this day.